Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling with an hour less of sleep? Uh, I was not a happy camper this morning. I'm just going to own it. I was not happy. I know the phone's making, you know, you don't have to do anything, but still, I feel it. I feel the difference. Uh, so good job. You're here. You made it. You're awake. Um, I know it's also spring break, so we have a lot of families uh, traveling. And so if you're watching online, uh, we're so glad you're here as well. Um, but great to be together this morning, great to worship together, and uh, we're going to continue in our series on Romans this morning. If you haven't been here, if today's your first Sunday, we're uh, going through Romans through a course of about 25 weeks and just really considering what does God want to say to us through his word, through this letter by the Apostle Paul. And so I want to encourage you to grab a Bible. Uh, there should be one in the seat back near you, or you can open it up on your app. To Romans uh, chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. As we get started, um, I want to share just uh, this, this little kind of uh, anecdote that I came across this week, um, and it's about um, something called the Herb Strait. Does anybody know where the Herb Strait is? I-R-B-E. It's, it's off the coast of Latvia uh, in the Baltic Sea, and uh, apparently the Herb Straits are, are pretty treacherous. It's a tricky spot for ships to navigate through, uh, because if you get even just a little bit off the main channel, uh, it's easy to get shipwrecked. Um, and so that's why they built a lighthouse on the coast there uh, of the Herb Strait. Now, what's interesting is during World War II, the Germans captured Latvia. And what they did was they actually turned the light on that lighthouse off, and they created a fake lighthouse further down the coast. And it was this plan to build a fake lighthouse that would actually mislead ships, allied ships that were trying to use the strait. And so as these ships would kind of come through the strait, the fake lighthouse would actually throw them off. They would trust the light that they could see, right, this lighthouse that they could see. And as a result, they were disoriented. And in fact, some of these ships even uh, um, ran aground because they were using the wrong lighthouse, this fake lighthouse. And I, I love this, this kind of image of, of a fake lighthouse and how it misled these ships because they were looking at the wrong light. Um, because I think as we get into Romans today, I think what Paul is doing here in the back half of chapter 2 is, is kind of, he's warning us against, if I could say it this way, fake lighthouses uh, out there in our lives. He's warning us against uh, fake lighthouses. As followers of Jesus, if we're going to uh, navigate our lives well, so to speak, we need to be careful. Careful because misplaced trust can actually cause us to lose our way and even wreck our lives. And so uh, as we look at these verses in chapter 2, that's what I want us to talk about this morning. I want it to, to be a, an invitation for us to kind of get our bearings, so to speak, as we seek to follow Jesus. And, and just like last week, this is a passage that was really written primarily uh, to a Jew, Jewish audience, but it was a Jewish and Gentile church in Rome. And so I think this word uh, that was written for those followers of Jesus in Rome in the first century is just as pertinent for us today. And so we're going to ask, Lord, what can we learn from what you've been saying here in Romans chapters 1 and 2? And just to give a quick recap, uh, so Paul, again, remember, he's writing to the followers of, uh, of Jesus in Rome. And his burning passion, right, as he light, writes this letter, is for them to know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his passion, the great, cosmic, personal 
good news that the long-awaited Savior, God's own Son, Jesus of Nazareth, has come, that he died, that he rose from the dead, and that he reigns on high as the King of eternity. He wants them to know that. And so what, what he does, he opens the letter with that great news, and then he gets into the back half of chapter one, where he is talking about our need. Why do we need a Savior King? Why do we need God's own Son to come? And he talks about the fact that something's gone terribly wrong. Uh, in the world and in every human heart. And we talked about this, how what's happened in humanity is that we have denied God, we've exchanged the truth of God for lies, and we've allowed ourselves to live in hostility to God and his will. And as a result, the world is not uh, completely destroyed. It was created by a good God and we are made in his image, but it's been marred, it's been distorted, it's been disordered marred by idolatry and immorality and injustice. And therefore, what Paul says is that we, as humanity, we stand deservingly under the judgment of God and in his wrath. And so last week when we looked at Romans chapter 2, the first half, uh, we talked about the fact that even Israel, God's covenant people who were meant to be different, to stand out as a light, the Old Testament says, to the Gentiles, uh, a light in the darkness has succumbed to sin and hypocrisy and deserves God's judgment too. And so when it comes to sin and the need for a savior, the Jewish people and the Gentile people are all in the same boat, okay? So what's gonna happen here in the back half of chapter two is Paul's gonna continue to unpack this same idea, that Jews and Gentiles are all in the same boat. And so I want you to look with me at verses 17 through 24 this morning. That's where we're gonna camp out. And as Paul is talking about this, um, I want us to consider the specific ways that the people of Israel have misplaced their trust and how that can help us as followers of Jesus uh, avoid the same error. So that's our goal this morning. How uh, is Paul helping them recognize how they misplaced their trust and how can that help us avoid the same error? Now remember, Paul is having a discussion with an imaginary Jewish uh, teacher or conversation partner. And here he raises, that conversation partner is going to raise two objections to everything that Paul has been saying up to this point. The idea is that Jews and Gentiles are in the, na- in the same boat. And the first objection is this. Uh, his Jewish conversation partner says, wait a minute, Paul. We, the people of Israel, we, the Jews, we have the law. Did you remember? We have the law. We can stand on that. right? We can keep the law as the people who have this very special relationship covenant relationship with God and we know what he wants from us and we know how to live by his law and we're qualified therefore to to be a light to the world to to lead the spiritually blind in the world and to to be a light in the darkness to the Gentiles and as God's chosen people Paul right we we have this law that gives us knowledge of God and the truth of God and so we are not actually in the same boat you're mistaken Paul we're not in the same boat as everybody we are special we're special and so what, what Paul does is he kind of gives us this, this argument, this objection, and then he's going f- to turn the tables on his, uh, on his conversation partner here. He's going to say in verse 21, look what he does in verse 21. He says, okay, um, what you've said is true. You have God's law. You're his covenant people. There's just one big problem. You don't actually practice what you preach. You're not actually living in light of the law that you have. 
He writes specifically, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? He just hits them with all these rhetorical questions. And the answer to all those questions is yes, they have done all these things. And so his rhetorical questions are forcing his fellow brothers and sisters of Israel to face a difficult truth. That on the one hand, they have the law, but rather than it leading them to God, it's actually leading them away from God. And they are off course. And they're actually using and misusing the law to judge others and not judge themselves, to teach others, but to not teach themselves. So that's the first objection, is we have the law, and Paul kind of dismantles that. Yeah, but you don't, you don't live by the law. You're not keeping the law. So back to his argument about being a hypocrite. Conversation continues. Okay, Paul, fine. That's fine. You, you kind of took down our law argument. What about circumcision? We have the sign of circumcision. Now, if, if, if you don't remember, uh, or if you're not familiar with circumcision, when I say sign of circumcision, what, is, what does that mean? Back in the Old Testament, God had given Israel the sign or the seal of his covenant with them. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people, and he gave them a sign. And one of the signs that he gave them was circumcision. In Genesis 17, God made these amazing promises to Abraham and his descendants, that is Israel. Listen to what it says in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Israel has good reason for understanding the importance of circumcision. It was given to them as a sign. Circumcision was a sign of God's faithfulness to his people and of his people's commitment to him. But circumcision, this is what Paul's going to explain, was never meant to be some kind of magical ceremony or function like a charm that protected Israel from God's judgment. But in Paul's day, that's, that's what it's become for many. Uh, there's almost a superstitious understanding of circumcision in Jesus and Paul's day. In fact, there's records of Jewish rabbis who taught things like this, that circumcised men do not go down to Gehenna. That's the word for hell. Uh, or that circumcision will deliver you from hell. Which is why Jesus and John the Baptist even and Paul here is making it very clear that the sign of circumcision itself cannot save anyone. Cannot save anyone. In fact, Paul goes on to say here that ultimately what matters is not the outward sign of circumcision, but the right response of the heart to God. And uncircumcised, this was scandalous what he says here. This would have really made... His, his, his fellow Israelites upset 
for him to say this, but this is what he says. He says, an uncircumcised Gentile who trusts in and obeys God will actually be counted among the righteous people of God. And he implies that the circumcised who are not righteous, who are not living in faith and obedience, will actually not be. Now, John Stott sums it up when he says this. He says, Paul is making this audacious claim that the ultimate sign of membership of the covenant of God is not circumcision, nor is it possession of the law, but the obedience with which circumcision in the law demand. The circumcision, this is the helpful piece, their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience proved they were not. Let me read that again. Their circumcision did not make them what their disobedience actually proved they are not. The outward sign compared to how they lived, compared to what was in their heart. This is not salvation by obedience, Stott writes, but obedience is the evidence of salvation. So what, is, what does all this mean? What's gone wrong with Israel here when it comes to the law and circumcision? Paul wants to make it clear that the law and circumcision were never meant to be a substitute for faith or obedience. Salvation has always been, this is really important, has always been, Old Testament and New Testament, it's always been by grace through faith. It has always been a gift. So Oswald Chambers says, we should never take obedience as the reason for God's blessing. Obedience is the outcome of being rightly related to God. And the problem for Israel was that these good gifts of the law and circumcision that were meant to lead them to God had actually become like idols to them. For many in Israel, trust in the law and circumcision had replaced actual trust in God. Now, that's a subtle, potentially subtle, but very destructive shift from confidence in God to confidence in the gifts of God namely the law and the sign of circumcision. And Paul wants them to see that. And he wants us to see that. He wants them to see that these good things, circumcision and the law, have become like idols to them. They have become, uh, in other words, like fake lighthouses. And they have begun to set the course of their lives in pursuit of these fake lighthouses, these, these idols. What was meant to help lead them and the world to God is now leading them and others away from God because of their idolatry and their hypocrisy. That's why Paul says here at the end, he says, God is being blasphemed. God is being blasphemed in the world because of you. Their lives aren't bearing witness to God. They are causing people to reject and actually deny him. So again, very strong words that Paul has for Israel. And it's because he loves them. He wants them to have the blinders removed so they can see their situation, and they can see Jesus and their need for him. That's, remember, that's his passion, is the gospel. And so with that in mind, what, what about us? What about us uh, today as followers of Jesus? Are we susceptible to the same temptation? Uh, to put it in a, another way, what are the fake lighthouses, you could say, in our own lives? The things that are tempted to get us off course and, and fix our attention on as opposed to the Lord Jesus. As followers of Jesus, how are we like Israel, prone to placing our trust, our confidence in good gifts of God instead of God? So I just thought of two, and I just want to kind of process these together. And the first I thought, and I think it's somewhat, uh, it might be somewhat obvious, um, is uh, the potential for baptism 
itself to be a fake lighthouse. So you remember circumcision is the covenant sign in the Old Testament. Uh, we hold that the covenant sign in the New Testament is baptism. So there's a, there's a correlation here. Um, and so one clear way we can make the same mistake is when it comes to baptism, maybe especially in our Anglican tradition as those who baptize infants. We might be susceptible to this. Now, baptism is an outward physical sign of a spiritual reality. It is meant to signify our rebirth in Jesus, that we are washed clean from sin, given new life in the Holy Spirit, and that we are now members of the covenant family of God. But it's not magic, right? It's not magic. And sometimes we can think about it that way or we can treat it that way. And I know that some of us come from backgrounds, from traditions, or from no church background, and we encounter infant baptism, and it makes us nervous. It makes us nervous because it looks like that, and it kind of sounds like that at times. It sounds like it just may automatically happen because we baptize the baby, that now they're good. Um, but I just want to be very clear. We are not saved by the mere act of sprinkling with or being immersed in water by the sign of baptism. Um, on the other hand, maybe you've come from a tradition that only baptizes adults. I grew up in a Baptist tradition. And in that setting, baptism can often be seen as nothing more than public proof of a personal and private decision to follow Jesus. That's the world I grew up in. And that's also problematic because that ignores the whole covenant sign and the reality that we are actually being born into a new humanity and that this, this decision that we've made is not just a private one. Um, and so I would say whatever our tradition, we have to remember that baptism isn't magic and it's not just about us. And I think those are both dangers. Baptism is an outward sign of what must take place in our hearts that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ into his church. And so like circumcision, what ultimately matters is not the outward sign of baptism, but the right response of our hearts to the Lord. So I think that's just one way to kind of think through how does this apply to us today. I think there's a lot of other ways this could apply. I think there's a lot of fake lighthouses, as it were, that we can fall prey to. There's a whole list of outward, visible, superficial ways we can live that are not actually connected uh, to God and a relationship himself. And so I just want to highlight maybe one more. And I've just been reflecting on this in my own life. Um, and so this, this one jumped out at me immediately. And it's, it's seeing people as an idol. Maybe you've never thought about it this way, but seeing people as an idol. Um, what, what do I mean by that? All of us are tempted to try and make ourselves worthy of God in some way, worthy of God, or at least, if we don't think about it that way, we want to be more worthy than this guy, right? We kind of look around the sur survey of the landscape, and we're like, okay, I just want to be kind of up here. If everybody else is kind of behind me and how good a person I am, then I feel better about myself, okay? I know no one else can relate to this. This is only how I work, right? But but I think it's a temptation, and when we live that way, what happens is it actually reveals something very important about what's going on in our hearts. Ultimately, that what, what's happening is we're becoming more concerned with what other people think about us than what God thinks about us. And so we begin to live that way. We live in a way that is pursuing what other people think, even if it goes against and comes at the cost of what God thinks about us. We're more concerned with the approval of people than of God. 
And so we can do all the right things, give all the appearance of being good moral people, attend church, be in a life group, give generously. We can do great things for God while in our hearts we are operating, we are not operating out of faith or loving obedience to God. Uh, we aren't fooling God when we do that, but we try. We want to give the appearance while we know full well in our hearts it's not out of faith or loving obedience. And we can live in such a way that we try to fill this need for God uh, and we try to fill this need that only God can fill, namely for worth and significance. And that's how we do it. We kind of operate at the horizontal level instead of seeking it in the vertical. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch, which I highly recommend. It's a little hard to find, um, but read this book. Please read this book. If this is even a little bit of a struggle for you, uh, read this book, When People Are Big and God is Small. In the book, he argues that modern-day followers of Jesus have succumbed to the fear of man over the fear of God, that it plagues our modern church culture. And he says this. He says, I meet so many people who are fairly sure that God loves them, but they're also desperately in need of love from other people, or at least they need something from other people. And as a result, they find themselves in bondage, controlled by others, and feeling constantly empty. They're controlled by whoever or whatever they believe can actually give them what they think they need. And so they live in this kind of deficit, this constant deficit. He goes on to explain that often what happens is we allow people and what they think of us to become our idol. I love this. He says we become empty people pleasers instead of godly people lovers. We allow what others think of us to matter more than what honors God, and it has these catastrophic consequences, catastrophic consequences on our lives. We become people pleasers instead of people lovers. Uh, recently, I, I heard that there's a pastor of a mega church here in town who um, had to resign uh, after it was discovered they were having an affair. And some of you probably know this story, and I would encourage all of us to pray for this church and to pray for that pastor. Uh, this is heartbreaking when this happens, and it happens all too often. But this is a man who, by all external appearances, was right with God. He was leading one of the fastest-growing churches in the country. Thousands had been baptized. I've never heard him preach, but I hear he's a gifted preacher of God's word. But here's the thing. Despite appearing to be a godly man on the outside, on the inside, he was clearly broken. In fact, he was, I would dare to say, he was struggling and being driven by the fear of man. I think I can say that with confidence as a fellow pastor. Because here's the thing. I can guarantee you he never woke up one morning and said, I'm going to commit adultery. I am going to be the pastor who's an adulterer. He didn't set off in the course of his life with that goal in mind. No one wakes up and thinks that way, but that's what they're going to be and what they're going to do. No one wakes up one morning and decides they're going to be a liar, that they're going to be phony, that they're going to be a hypocrite. But when our desire for people's approval becomes more important than God's approval, what happens is we open ourselves up to all kinds of things we never imagined that we would do. 
We become a slave to that idol. And we'll do anything to please it, to worship it. We end up trying to manipulate and control other people and circumstances for our own ends. We can become proud and blind, I mean literally blind to our own sin. We can end up thinking we are right with God. This is, the, this is the most devastating part. I think this is why Paul is hammering on this so hard. We can actually think we are right with God when our hearts are actually far from him. We can look great on the outside. Right? Have all the marks of a follower of Jesus and be spiritually dead on the inside. That's why Paul says it's not about the outside. That's why in verse 29 he says, look, this is about the heart. That's what he calls it, a matter of the heart. How you live must flow out of your heart. And you have to give your heart, you have to trust your heart to the Lord. And so just to close, I, I want to just ask us this morning, to consider and ask the Holy Spirit to help you in this. What is the orientation of your heart? What is the orientation of your heart? Specifically, who are you entrusting your heart to? The approval of others is a fake lighthouse. Are you entrusting your heart to people? Are you entrusting it even to yourself? to fake lighthouses and to idols, or ultimately to the true light, to Christ. The approval of others will never be enough for you. You can never do enough to be worthy of God's love. And that's why Paul wants to passionately proclaim the good news, that God has come to make us free from these idols, to rescue us from ourselves and from the fear of man, from our self-confidence and from our sin. And when we put our trust in Christ, when we put our trust in Christ, the true light, we can be forgiven and we are declared worthy. That's who you are. Not because of anything you can do, but because of what Christ has done for you. Through faith in Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit and we are set free to live not for ourselves or even for others, but passionately for the Lord. Paul is saying this is a matter of the heart and we need God's spirit to cleanse our hearts and to free us from fear. And if we trust in him, he will do that. He will do that. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this teaching from your word, these words of the Apostle Paul. Lord, and you love us more than we could ever understand. And Lord, you want there to be no pretense in our relationship with you. And Lord, some of us, Lord, we've been trying to fake it, been trying to cover. Lord, what's on the outside doesn't match the inside. And Lord, we, we need your help to free us from that. And so Lord, I pray even this morning that you would free the people in this room from those strongholds, from those idols, from the fear of man, the pressure to be something that you never asked them to be. And that they would know who they are 
in Christ, a beloved son, a beloved daughter, free from fear, with the hope of Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.